This week on Breaking Bullying, it's National Bully Prevention Month, and Bruce needed more rest. So while he's still waiting around with his water wings, I'm here to start the show. So we're going to hit that music, and we're going to get started. Joining me this week, I have a special guest co-host named Stephanie Francis. Stephanie, how are you doing today? Hey, Tim. I'm doing well. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. Thank you for filling in Bruce's shoes. Apparently, he's too important as a Hollywood actor, writer to (laughs) join me these days. So I'm just, you know, left to fend for myself. I'm happy and honored to be here. Thank you. I'm really excited that you're with us because I know you're a big fan of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And we have a special guest today named Elizabeth Sweeney. Did I say that right? Yes. She is a 2018 Winter Olympian, and she's also a stand-up comedian. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Oh, sure. Excited to be here and looking forward to chatting with both of you. So, Elizabeth, this week... We're talking about the little voice syndrome. Have you heard of that before? I have. So the the voice in your head that either tells you to do something or something else. It can be encouraging or or have another attitude too. Correct. So my experience with little voice syndrome is usually not encouraging. Mm -hmm. Being bullied as I was growing up as a kid, that little voice would tell me not to do things. I'm too afraid to try new stuff because I'm scared of the outcome. And the voice would tell me, you stink, you're going to fail at it. Tell us your story, Elizabeth, because you accomplished a lot of stuff for someone at your young age, running for governor, Olympian, ninja warrior, stand-up comedian. You've done a lot. Can you share us your story? Sure. So I had a goal when I was really young of competing in the Olympics, first as a figure skater. So I figure skated maybe like once a week when I was growing up. I always had a love for sports, so always had that Olympic dream in my mind and did different sports growing up and continuing as an adult. I really got into competitive winter sports when I was recruited by USA Bobsled and Skeleton, and then I did Skeleton for them, which is headfirst on a bobsled track for their Devo team, and I think I got recruited because I did rowing in college um, for like a good team, the Cal Berkeley team. So using both of those sports as a background, I felt confident competing in skiing later on. And I learned to ski in 2010, about eight years before the Olympics. So I love the the new world that skiing brought to me on the mountain. And I love sharing skiing with others. I became a ski instructor later that year that I learned to ski and started training with a freestyle team. So Always my goal in life was to uh, compete in the Olympics. So I um, figured out a way to make that happen and train really hard. And I'm grateful for the the friends and coaches that supported me along the way. Wow. You did the skeleton. I did. Okay. So you've heard of the skeleton. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. We're big Olympic fans in my house. And we always just watch the skeleton and says, "How how do you train for this? How does one look at this and say, let me try? I would be terrified to do that. Yeah, well, I think I think every skeleton slider, bobsledder, luge slider, everyone goes down the same track. Everyone's a little terrified going down, but what I like about it is that at the end of the track, you're grateful to be alive and have, to have survived that. So the rest of life is a lot less stressful at at the end of a skeleton run. Wow. Before you got into 
skiing in the Olympics. What made you want to try to run for governor? I'm really intrigued by that because you were 19 years old at that time. I was very young and there was a recall election in California. I wanted to make some changes. I was a student at that time, an undergraduate. So I thought I could make some positive changes and be a representative um, for a lot of Californians. And I just thought it would be a great opportunity. I decided to run a small campaign, collect signatures and see how far I could go with that. It turns out I was the youngest or one of the, the youngest candidates to run for governor that year. It's And it was the same election where Arnold Schwarzenegger ran as well. So it was it was fun to be a candidate alongside. You were 19, you were a kid. Yeah, I, I definitely was pretty young. Did you have mostly positive feedback from people when they would hear that you're 19 years old running for governor of California? I think so. People found it entertaining, fun, um, lots of positive feedback. There were so many candidates, though, that year that a lot more candidates that were a lot more well-known than I was, like Arnold and a lot of other candidates. So I, I don't think there was heavy attention, particularly on me. I think it was spread out among a lot of the candidates. I think there are, yeah, definitely over 100, maybe like 120 candidates that year. So how did they pick like the final group of people in that? The final group of people. So it was up to the California voters to decide that. So I obviously was not chosen, but it was nice to try it out. And I thought of it as a uh, like maybe once in a lifetime opportunity. So why not do it? And I've tried to have that mentality for other opportunities in my life. I think I don't want to let that pass me by. And am I going to regret not doing it if I pass this by? So that's also a lens that I put on some things I'm deciding on. I think, okay, am I, if I step away from this, am I going to regret it or not regret it? And that encourages me to do something. You feel like that motivation is louder than that little voice syndrome that Tim was talking about? The fear, the what will people say? What will people think? What if I fail? It's obviously your drive is stronger than that. Right. I, I do think that's true. And I think that's a voice as well. That's a fear also. The fear of the next day, which I, I have been in that situation before. Oh, I regret not taking this opportunity or saying hi to this person at this event, or taking a chance on that, that fear or regret um, that I've usually had in past situations, I know is going to be greater. So I, I don't want that to happen. So that's one of the reasons why I proactively do a lot of things. It doesn't always happen that way, but it is, I do try to encourage myself to take advantage of opportunities as they come available and if I can help people along the way, that's even better. Have you always grown up with that mindset as a kid? Yeah, a mindset that I've had consistently throughout my life, but it's definitely grown as I've gotten older. I think when I was younger, I was shyer, so I didn't have always the, the confidence to pursue different activities and conversations with different people. But as I've gotten older and had more experiences, I've also grown in confidence and that has helped me with more interactions and with the background and mindset to pursue different opportunities. What would you attribute that growth in confidence to? 
I think just having different experiences throughout my life and helping each experience build on the next experience. I haven't been able to do everything I've wanted to, but I take each experience as a learning experience and something that can help me grow and develop into the next thing. Sometimes the, I heard someone say recently that sometimes the challenges we face in life um, turn out to be the greatest growth opportunities Mm -hmm. later in life as well. So I think that's been true in certain circumstances throughout my life. For example, I haven't, there were several Olympics where I really wanted to make it and I didn't make it into the Olympics. So I kept training. So I looked at those in as growth opportunities, or I didn't make a certain sports team. So I trained really hard, tried to improve or I run marathons. Now I, my first marathon was slow for me, I thought. So I tried to figure out ways to make my marathons faster. And I have made a lot of my marathons faster since then. So there's a lot of ways to improve, I think, each of the situations that we're in. And you're oftentimes given a second opportunity to do things, not always, but even if someone isn't, there's opportunities to showcase your talents or help someone in in different ways. How many times did you try out for the Olympic team? So the Olympics has always been a lifelong pursuit for me, at least since age seven. I I kind of felt like I was always trying out for the Olympic. I pursued different sports as well. At one point, I thought, okay, I'm going to be an Olympic figure skater, but that didn't work out. Then I, I did some ice hockey and speed skating. So I did all the skating sports before I was a skier and kind of thought maybe I can make it as a skater. That didn't happen. I was a coxswain for the crew team. I mentioned that um, doing rowing. And I, I kind of thought, okay, maybe I can do the Olympics in rowing, but there's really only one space for a coxswain each Olympics, or at least a while ago there was. I didn't make it for rowing, but all those sports gave me a great cross training background and a knowledge of competition at like different levels and knowledge of how to interact with teammates, how to train. So I feel like I didn't make the Olympics so many times with those sports, specifically for skeleton. When the U.S. development developmental team recruited me in 2006, I tried to make the 2010 Olympics and I didn't make it. I didn't make the 2014 Olympics. I had switched countries at that time, but and I tried in 2014 to make it for freestyle skiing and skeleton. In 2014, I realized I was very, very close to making the team, making it, making an Olympic spot for freestyle skiing, but a little further away for making it for skeleton. So I decided, okay, maybe I'll just pursue skiing. 2014, decided to definitely focus a lot more on freestyle skiing, and then that worked out. I obviously made it four years later. I have a question. So as a big Olympic fan and we love to follow the backstories. You said you you fell in love with the Olympics when you were seven. Who were you watching in the Winter Olympics? Growing up in yeah, definitely California, I was a fan of the US women's figure skaters and a lot of them were heavily profiled on TV and recently in movies. So my favorite at the time was Christy Yamaguchi who won a gold medal and she was I think yeah, you remember her 
too. Really amazing. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's she's incredible. So great to watch. I got to meet her, I think, 10 or 11 years later. So she was always an inspiration. She also, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. She was from the Bay Area. So it was neat to see someone from around my hometown, Oakland, also competing in the, or competing in the Olympics. So that, that was an inspiration for me, seeing her and a lot of the other, other figure skaters that year. But other fun facts are like, I was born, that my mom likes to tell me I was born during the Summer Olympics. So my mom likes to say, oh, shoot, I was like born to be an Olympian. And she also likes to say that I've never seen a sport that I haven't fallen in love with. So a lot of the sports I've, I've tried, I've tried to make the best of them and had fun with them. Obviously, there are some sports that I have more of a passion for, but I, I have used a lot of sports as a springboard, at least for cross training to make myself better in other sports. And even if I haven't competed in a sport or it hasn't gone super well for me, I value the relationships with people that I've developed in each one of those sports and the lessons I've learned in each one as well. When you didn't make the the Olympic teams, what was your mindset like at that moment? How'd you feel? I think the hardest Olympic team not to make was the 2014 team because I felt like I was pretty close and especially in freestyle skiing. So that was hard. And I, I wanted to kind of make the Olympic team and do something else. I wasn't sure what. I decided shortly after the Olympics, I wanted to keep going, keep pursuing the Olympics until 2018. So it it definitely did work out. And I, I'm grateful for the what I learned from yeah, 2014 to 2018. Met a lot of people I wouldn't have otherwise if I had maybe just made it in 2014 and stopped after that time. What I like about your story is that even though you didn't fully succeed in one area, you didn't quit. You always found a different way to achieve your goal. And I feel like that's about a valuable lesson to learn. Even like a lot of kids these days, they trial for a baseball team. They don't make it. They quit baseball. Mm -hmm. They try karate. They're not good at it right away. They quit karate. What advice do you have for parents when they have a kid like that who just quits every time they don't succeed right away? I would encourage really for parents and kids to talk and think about, okay, what did I like on this sports team? What was the highlight? And maybe what was the low light? And can I continue in this sport? Can I think about it in a month or a year? And if not, what other sport do I want to try? Or do I want to try another activity before thinking about sports again? Or do I just want to go to the gym? There's so many different sports out there. I have tried a lot. And some of the sports I did, I didn't even know existed a few years before, before I did them. So I didn't know skeleton existed for a few months before I made it to the U.S. team. So there's always lots of things to explore. If someone doesn't do well in karate, for instance, right? there's a lot of other martial arts to try, right? And then there's other martial arts schools to, to go to. So often there is an opportunity for someone to really fit in with a community somewhere and then also really fit in with that sport and make it their own at the same time. Yeah, it would seem that you not only get better physically, but also all of these experiences have made, you've worked on your personal development as well. And I mean, I'm just blown away at all of your accomplishments because like Tim said, there are so many kids. Well, if I, 
I didn't make this dance team or I didn't make this ball team, then they, well, I don't, they don't want to do it anymore. Instead of saying, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it better. I'm going to try something else. We need more of that. I think just that spunk of like, keep going better, better yourself. And it's so much more than just a physical practice harder, right? Like it has to be a, a mental space to be in and personal development. Right. I, agree and yeah thank you I think that does happen even at the pro level Mm -hmm. some pros they get traded to a different team whether they want whether they want to or not and sometimes it works out better for them they do find a better fit with that other team and they do carry those lessons that they've learned for that Mm -hmm. previous team so it's not even even the yeah sports stars we look up to they don't they're always going to have a great day and sometimes they're going to have a game that's maybe not perfect. So I think that is consistent throughout the human experience, having having great days and even the low days, there's gonna be a positive experience in that in that hard day. And that's maybe something that people can take away and help to make themselves stronger. You achieved your dreams of making it to the Olympics, but tell us how the media treated you and how you're able to ignore what the media was saying versus what your Olympians are saying. Right. So I, I finished 24th out of 24th in women's freestyle ski half pipe. So that that's last. But I also like to say kind of in stand-up comedy, I'm a team player. I helped the other 23 people finish <laughs> better than me. Um, and yeah, I still got to live my Olympic dream. I feel like the other competitors um, that I was competing with, like, we're all, we were all like friends, like got along um, pretty well throughout the World Cup years leading up to the Olympics. So it was like a, a big basketball team where we're all supporting each other throughout the different competitions. And on the big game day, the Olympics, we all want to win. But at the end of the day, we're still getting along. We're all still friends or just get along with each other at the least. So it, it was um, an amazing experience to be supported by them. A lot of the... Uh, other freestyle skiers were super encouraging to me at the Olympics. We traded pins, which is an Olympic tradition, which was really fun. And there were also other opportunities to kind of interact with them throughout the World Cup circuit. The media had like a variety of opinions on my skiing. I feel like maybe 75% were like leaning on the negative side because I finished last and maybe 25% were positive. The journalists who spent some time with me at the Olympics. Jeff Passan, who wrote for Yahoo News, I think he's with ESPN now. Anyways, he's like a very well-known sports writer. He actually got to know me, interviewed like eight or nine different people that have known me for a while. And he wrote a very comprehensive article on me. Is I think it's titled, Is Elizabeth Swinney the Worst Olympian? She Might Be the Best. That was really nice to read, something very like comprehensive. It has um, variety of like opinions in it, but I, I really feel like that was mostly a positive article. So I I look to that as something that's more of the the truth of me, someone who got to know me, got to interview other people. Um, something that also helped really encourage me after my Olympic runs were that every athlete interviewed about me that I competed with in freestyle skiing when they happened to be asked about me they said positive things so it was nice reading that I feel like still the focus should have been more on like their performance how did they do but when they were asked about me I was so grateful that that they said things like okay she's trained with us 
she just done all the work. She deserves to be here just as much as anyone else here. That is something that it's not like a big deal to me. But when I when people ask you, oh, like, what do you think of your Olympic performance? I know I did the best I could. And I'm encouraged by what my fellow competitors said. At the Olympics, I didn't have a coach. Ended up coaching another country at the Olympic Village, and that was a surprise. So that made things a little difficult, but I still did my runs, competed, did my best, and was really proud for like what I did and proud of all my fellow competitors and all the other athletes at the Olympic Village as well. And, of course, it was really exciting to be competing for um, Hungary, which is a country that like didn't have tons of representation in the Winter Olympics and be part of their team. And because I didn't have a coach at the Olympics, I was able to give my coaching spot to the speed skating team. So they were able to get another coach and they end up, ended up with several medals at the Olympics. So it was nice to be a tiny, tiny, tiny part of that, like oh, contribute a coach to them. And they were able to do something positive with that, add a coach to their organization for the Olympics. I want to go back to what you said. You said 75% of the press were talking negative about you. How does that, how do you keep yourself positive and ignore that? Because for me, personally for me, when I opened up my business, I had a lot of people supporting me saying, congratulations, great job. Then I'll get one comment saying, you're not karate or they'll find a way to put me down. And I would let that one comment out of like, you know, seven people who are positive affect me the most. How do you ignore that negativity and just focus on the positive? So it did help to, like, in terms of focusing on the positive, I thought about, okay, what do the experts have to say? And the experts in freestyle skiing are my, like, fellow competitors at the Olympics in freestyle skiing. Those are the experts. And all the experts interviewed about me said positive things. Then someone that's writing for the media about the Olympics um, is not necessarily an expert in freestyle skiing. They're probably not a skier. Maybe they are, but they're not competing at the Olympic level, at least at that time. So the experts said positive things about me, and that's what I focused on. In addition to just myself, like I was excited for all my accomplishments and being able to share those with the world, helping inspire like Hungary and hopefully people in the US and around the world. That was more my motivation. Like it was less like, oh, what is someone thinking about me? But how can I help inspire others? And how can I be grateful and proud of my accomplishments? So also I remember in one of our like online workouts, Eric the trainer brought in a guest and someone asked, I think him, that guest, how do you deal with with haters? And I think that guest mentioned haters are just confused lovers. So I thought that was a fun, fun takeaway as well. So why why would someone spend that much energy not liking someone or putting someone down unless they found some part of themselves, that that person intriguing? Good point you made is listen to the experts and don't listen to the haters. They'll listen to the kids who know nothing about what they're trying to do. They see this kid do something and maybe not live up to the expectations and they make fun of them. You're able to ignore those type of people, focus on the experts. And I think that's what we need to teach our kids more to do is focus on your coach, focus on what your parents say. Don't worry about what the other person across the room thinks of you. 
you know, do what you want to do. If you're happy with it, you should be happy with it. No one else should take that away from you. I feel like you don't have a negative thought in your mind. So strong to do everything she does. So positive. Thanks. Yeah, I, think, I mean, you two have great mentalities also. And I think we frame things in a really positive light and are really determined people and like to encourage others as well. So it's, yeah, great to have this conversation with, with both of you. And I yeah, definitely... I agree, just kind of focusing on the experts, focusing on what they have to say. On the other hand, I um, still like know that a lot of people that I happen to meet, sometimes they're like, oh, like I heard about your Olympic story. So they'll ask me questions about that. Usually they're more, they're more curious. So because of the amount of people that already know my story and they've probably read one of the media articles, yeah. which is actually uh, not positive and often like not accurate, I've actually tried to kind of re-own my story and use that for stand-up comedy. So I acknowledge people, whatever they've said about me in the media, and use those as stand-up comedy stories. So that empowers me to kind of own my story again, tell people my narrative, but also acknowledge what people have said, whether it's positive, negative, like accurate or inaccurate. I'm able to incorporate that into stand-up comedy, and that has even giving me kind of more confidence and power as I um, have gone on throughout the years. What got you into stand-up comedy? So there were two things that happened in the same week that got me into stand-up comedy. The first thing that happened is that I met up with a friend who wanted to carpool with me so I could support her at her show, which was, and then she told me in the car, this is a benefit show you're also going to perform tonight. So I agreed to help out at the show. And then after I did that, uh, or after I helped, as I was helping out at the show, I watched the other comedians and figured out a set and did that set at the end of the night. So that was the first time I ever did stand up comedy to fill in at the benefit show. I had to do it. So I figured something out. Later that week, I went to another stand-up comedy show and it was a very expensive uber ride like 40 50 to get there i thought okay i might well make it worth it i'll chat with people after the show the other comics so i did the club owner happened to be there the club owner asked me have you ever done stand-up comedy before and this was at the comedy chateau and i said okay i did it once about a week ago this like random thing you said oh come to my open mics i have them every sunday so i went to those um, every Sunday for about four weeks and that was booked for one of his bigger shows so I feel like two people chose stand-up comedy for me I didn't really choose it mm -hmm. for myself and that was one of the the second one of the other things in life that was kind of chosen for me and I chose to trust other people with that that vision the other thing was skeleton sliding so skeleton was not something I envisioned for myself. I tried to get recruited by USA bobsled and skeleton. And I was focusing on bobsledding because I thought I could steer a bobsled with my experience steering crew shells on the water. I actually still think they're pretty similar. And USA bobsled and skeleton told me, we like your background, but we think you're, you're too small to be a bobsledder. Why not do skeleton? So. I never envisioned for myself going headfirst down a bobsled track at 80 miles per hour, but someone else believed I could do it as well as two other people envisioning that I could do stand-up comedy and 
those were intriguing enough that I thought, okay, if I say no to these, I'm probably going to regret it. I think there's a lot of upside if I try it out and enjoy it. So I chose to say yes to those opportunities and ended up making those my own. How did your first set go? First time being in front of everybody trying out comedy? Because I've seen people try it for the first time and it's like, oh boy, uncomfortable. That's what I want to know. What's scarier, hoping a joke doesn't bomb or going headfirst 80 miles an hour in skeleton? Well, I think, yeah, those are, are both wild experiences. I think there's not not too much uh, scarier than skeleton. Maybe maybe like really big freestyle ski tricks are a little scary. But my first time doing stand-up comedy, I was trying to figure out what to say. And it was... Actually, it was a really cool benefit show to stop Asian hate. And I thought, okay, what can I contribute to this? How can I fit in stand-up comedy to this evening? And I thought, okay, the last time I was in Asia, I was there to compete at the Olympics. So I will just talk about my experiences as, as an Olympian, and I was in Korea. So I just talked about my experiences finishing last as an Olympian. So you've taken some of that criticism and that negativity and you have turned it into an opportunity to make people laugh and bring joy. So kind of the jokes on them, right? The people that brought the negativity because you're now using it for your for your own benefit and to further your career with the stand up comedy. So I heard that the worst jokes would be about yourself. So I try to make fun of myself before other other people have. And I love that that can help people have a good time at night. I think that's the best thing if people laugh. And if I know I'm helping someone have a good night, that's just a, a really good feeling. If someone doesn't laugh at a joke, then I just go on to the next joke and I go on to jokes that I know work all the time. And I know it's um, in feedback that I can use for future sets. And it's the same mentality I feel like I've had for sports. If there's a day that doesn't work out in sports or a sport that doesn't work out. There's always ways to improve that and tweak that. So I can have something stronger the next time. Were you taught this mentality or is this something that you kind of just have? I think it's a, a combination of both. So I feel like I, I learned from everyone that I interact with and I am inspired by a lot of people. So grateful for just the learning opportunities that come with getting to know everyone that's around me. But um, I feel like that's also part of who I am. I think it's fair to say you don't worry mm -hmm. so much about being perfect. You just do it. And what happens, what happens. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I haven't thought too much about perfection. Uh, I think I focus on just, yeah, exactly trying to do it and then make improvements over time. And the idea, what it, what is perfect, that changes over time as well. There's, it's always maybe a moving target. So it's, I don't think usually any performance is perfect or that's very, very rare. And that, that always changes. So I just try to do it and then not do it. I love that you're always looking for ways to improve. You just said, well, if a joke flops, then you note it and you move on and you incorporate that. It's like you find a way to I always try to tell my children this, like your greatest strength is going to be to know your weaknesses so you can know where to improve. And I'm just so inspired by that. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's great advice, too. And then, um, yeah, just knowing your weaknesses in, in addition to your strengths. I think those are really like both powerful mm -hmm. tools to have because then you can know what to fall back on your strengths, but also know what to improve on. And 
oftentimes someone's weakness can become their strength or something scary can become something comfortable. For example, the thought of going headfirst down a bobsled track, that was very (laughs) scary, scary for me when I first thought about it and still like was for years, like my first run. Do you have any other dreams that you want to achieve? So yeah, I have a tech pitch roast comedy show. So tech founders present their pitches and they're roasted by comedians and investors. So I, yeah, thanks. So I've had that show. I've had 22 shows in about 11 months in all around California. We're going to be in, yeah, New York soon, Texas soon. So I've loved that show. It's um, a great way for people in tech to meet each other, people learning about tech. Also, it helps founders get really honest, candid feedback about their tech pitches, and they've often found funding or business partners, employees through the show. So I love helping build community that way. Yeah, it's called Money is Funny Tech Pitch Bro Show. So I want to continue to build Money is Funny and grow that and help connect people in a really fun way. I feel like a lot of business events in general tend to be transactional. So I like creating exciting events that serve as a great icebreaker for for meeting people. So that's one goal I have, continuing to develop that show, building community there. I also am a stunt performer for films. So I'd love to continue doing that and love the stunt community and acting community. So it'd be really cool to do that. And yeah, just continuing to be in the entertainment industry and, and tech world. Those are really cool worlds that I'm yeah, excited and honored to be a part of. Do you have any, like you mentioned the money is funny fundraiser but like a specific athletic goal i read somewhere you've done like 20 marathons right so i have yeah i've done 20 marathons i've also done two ultra marathons which is anything over a marathon my last one was at burning man which was 50k in the desert which is fun um little a little challenging where can people find you if they want to connect with you or find your shows. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty easy to find on most of the social medias. So my my email is eswaney at gmail.com, E-S-W-A-N-E-Y at gmail.com. I'm also on, yeah, like Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, whichever, uh, whichever someone prefers to connect with. But yeah, not not that hard to find. And as for us, you can always find us at our very own website, which is ww.breakingbullying. You can also reach out to us at our email address if you have a story of your own bullying to share, or for whatever reason you want to get a hold of us. Our email address is breakbullyinghere at gmail.com. Now, if you are a victim of bullying and you don't know where to turn, there are online resources to help you. The first is the government's very own anti-bullying website, and the address is www. .stopbullying.gov. Another online resource is www.pacer.org backslash bullying. Now, if you've had thoughts of suicide or of self-harm, we implore you, stop. Reach out to the National Suicide Hotline. That number is very simple. It's 988. I'm the missing Bruce Naxon. For Tim Flynn, thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week to continue the conversation to break the silence on bullying.